Well, good morning again. My name is Skeet, and I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. We're in our second week of a series entitled Runaway Prophet, where we look at the life and ministry of Jonah. As you guys are turning there, I want to acknowledge someone who's here with us. We've got uh, Keith Keller, who's our former student pastor here and one of our supported missionaries uh, in Prague, the Czech Republic. There's Keith. I want you everybody to look at the tall guy that's standing up and wave. Um, we want to just thank Keith for being here with us this morning. Towards the end of our service, you'll get to hear a little bit from him. But I would encourage you, if you, if you know Keith, to catch him and, and just spend some time encouraging them and learning about their ministry. If you don't know Keith, to catch them and see what the Lord is doing in the Czech Republic in any event. And so with that out of the way, I want us to jump into uh, the scriptures this morning. And, and as we do that, I want to tell you a story of something that I got the pleasure of experiencing this summer. Um, Our church for years has had a real focus on global missions. And so one of the things when I came on as the senior pastor that I wanted to do was to spend a considerable amount of time in the field with some of our key supported missionaries. And so one of the things that I've really wanted to do for a long time was to spend some time with Tom and Ramonda Lunsford on the ground in Ethiopia. And Tom and Ramana have been a blessing to us here as they've been back and forth. And so I was incredibly excited to see the ministry. And the unfortunate thing is that uh, schedules just hadn't worked. And we had tried a number of times uh, to make it work, and something always came up. And, and really, in God's grace, uh, this summer in August, things just fit. And so I'm incredibly thankful that the church has allowed me and sends me uh, to go and be a part of that ministry. And so thank you to you guys. And as I was there, got to see one of the most exciting, really a moment I didn't expect to get to witness, but an amazing event that is rare. And I want, I want to tell you about that. We drove out of Addis Ababa, which is the capital, kind of in the middle of the country, and we went south. And then we went south some more. And then we went south some more. And we got right to the point where if you believe that the earth was flat, you would have been concerned about falling off the edge. Because that's where it felt like we were. Uh, In this very, very remote area. And it took a long time to get there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how far we traveled. I, I don't know how you measure distance in Ethiopia. I just measured it in terms of time. Because it was like a two day trip. The, the thing with Ethiopia is that the roads are different than the roads here. And by different, I mean we may not recognize a road as a road. We might see what is known to be a road in Ethiopia and not realize that we're looking at one. Uh, in fact, uh, Pastor Isaias, one of their ministry partners uh, there, was telling me a story recently where they were headed up a mountain road uh, to go and do pastor training up there. And the road, which was on the side of the mountain, had washed out. And so we had an issue where the road is too narrow to go forward and it's too narrow to turn around and go back. And so they hired out, I think, five motorcycles to carry them across rivers and up mountains to the place that they were going. Uh, The ministry leaders there will walk for days to go and train other pastors. And so transportation in Ethiopia, slightly different from what you and I experience. And so when you and I talk about a traffic jam, we might discuss the fact that Beltway 8 and 249 was shut down this weekend, and so there was a backup. A traffic jam, as you're heading south in Ethiopia, involves trying to figure out how many more goats are going to cross the road uh, before we're able to move through it as well. So we finally get to this remote region in southern Ethiopia, and there's a people there, a tribe called the Bunna tribe. 
And while we were there, there was this huge gathering of the Christians in the region, people from the denomination. They were there to celebrate an important moment. That day that we were there, the Bunna people would receive the New Testament in their language for the first time. Now, I want you to, to compare that to our experience, just to think through that, is that you and I can walk into even, not just Christian bookstores, but we can go into Walmart, Target, and we can buy copies of the whole Bible in our language. And we've been able to do that for years and years and years. More than that, we've got a whole menu of options of which version do you want. In fact, for, for our uh, elementary age boys, we have a Bible that is like a, a graphic novel. It's, it's designed and built out like a comic book. We have all of these choices, and we got to see, for the first time, these people get the New Testament in the language of their heart, the language they spoke, that they could read and understand in their on their own. And the thing that struck me as we sat there uh, experiencing the moment was the stories that people told that got us to the point we were at that day. Because the people of Ethiopia value hospitality so well, we're ushered uh, to the front row dead center, best seats in the house. And there's denominational leaders and pastors preaching and encouraging people to treasure, value, and use the Word of God. And then these ladies who had devoted years and years and years of study to producing this New Testament for the Bunna people, stood up to speak about their life's work and a labor of love for them. And they began to tell the story of, of how this New Testament translation came to be. The story of a missionary who had come before and done work and kept copious notes on, on the people and their cultures and customs. Had left those notes in another language that they then had to translate just so they could understand and make use of them about learning the language and creating an alphabet, learning how they structured and the rules of their language. Stories of working with local native-speaking ministry leaders who committed time and energy to reading, rereading, and editing so that the translation of the New Testament they got would hit home. So that it would resonate as being truly translated into their mother tongue. And then as the moment comes, everyone has spoken and been honored, and we lift up the first box of New Testaments. And that's when it hit me for the first time that I wasn't really in Texas. Because we've got this box of New Testaments that we're going to give to the people, and it doesn't appear that anyone has a pocket knife. So, I became useful at that moment in the story. Because I carry a pocket knife. Even in Africa, I carry a pocket knife. Now, you don't want to put this in your check luggage that's going on board with you. Now, this doesn't go in the carry-on. It goes in the check luggage because TSA doesn't like these on board where you can reach them. So I pop it in the check luggage, and, and I've got it with me. And so I'm front row dead center. We're trying to figure out a way into the boxes, and so I get to do this. I seized my opportunity. I open the knife, and I hand it to the guy, and he takes it, and he cuts it open. So this is by far the coolest thing this pocket knife has ever done. And I say that because, I mean, this knife has skinned an elk in the mountains of Colorado. That's cool. But opening a box of Bibles for the first time given to believers in their own language tops anything I could think of. And I tell you that story because this is what struck me in the midst of that. 
is that God had been doing this great work amongst this tribe of people in southern Ethiopia, and that that work, now empowered with the Word of God in their own language, is going to expand. We're going to hear more people coming to faith in Jesus as the church grows in maturity, digging into the Word of God as they're able to preach it with clarity. And that this work of salvation amongst the bun of people in southern Ethiopia is going to continue and expand, but that that work did not take a direct A to B route. It was a 30-year story of detours and curves and obstacles that God, by His Spirit and His people trusting in Him, had gone from point A to point B, but it was not the trip you would have expected. And as we look at Jonah 2 today, I want you to see the story of the salvation of God. And I want you to see that this story doesn't go from point A to point B. It goes from point A to point Z to point B and back to where God was leading. And to remember that as we jump here. And so I want to go back and tell the story again and get you to where we are in Jonah's life. See, the story of Jonah begins with God calling a prophet to go and preach against Nineveh. To go and proclaim to them that God had not been absent, that God had noticed their sin and their wickedness. And God was sending Jonah there to proclaim God's judgment upon the people of Nineveh because of their sin. And Jonah is less than excited about the prospects of preaching to Nineveh. And there's a number of reasons I expect that Jonah might have feared for his own life, but as we read the story, we find Jonah understands what God is doing, and that's the reason he doesn't want to go. See, Jonah understands that God is offering mercy to the people of Nineveh. He's giving them a chance to turn and repent. And Jonah would rather not go because he hates the people of Nineveh. He hates them because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and God had told them already through Amos' words that he would use the Assyrians to conquer the people of Israel, Jonah's home country. He hates them because he knows their wickedness and he believes that he is righteous. And so rather than going to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Joppa, the nearest seaport, and instead of going 500 miles north and to the west, he goes 2,500 miles east, as far as he could go. So he books his ticket on a boat, And he finds himself running from God and his presence, having rejected his purpose and because of that unable to remain in his presence. Somewhere when they were out at sea, a storm comes upon the boat. The winds and the waves threaten to destroy the boat. So these seasoned men of the sea begin to throw things overboard to lighten the load in hopes that the boat would fare better if it were lighter. Then they begin to cry out to their gods. And we sense that there's a number of gods, probably men from different regions of the world, each with their own god. And so they lay the full buffet out and they say, everybody, uh, cover your bets and let's pray. And as they do this, they realize that Jonah is down in the bottom of the boat asleep. So they go and they wake Jonah and they say, Jonah, we don't know about your god, but cry out to your god and maybe your god will stop this. Then they gather together and they cast lots to determine whose fault it is. And the lot falls upon Jonah and they inquire, Jonah, what have you done? He informs them that he's a prophet. He honors and seeks God of Israel, except at this moment he disobeys him. And that the God of Israel is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who controls all things. And immediately everyone on the boat realizes Jonah is an idiot. 
Jonah has attempted to run from God. A God who controls all of creation. And you can see why this would make sense. In the ancient world, there were many gods that people worshipped, but most of them had a regional location. So there was the God of this city or that city. That's not who Jonah says he worships. Jonah says his God, who's angry at him, is the God over all creation, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the creator and ruler of everything. That there's no jurisdictional lines that you can cross and now be outside of the bounds of this God's power, authority, and ability to judge. See, they believed that there would be a line that they could cross. If you worship the God of the sea, all you had to do if he was angry at you was stay away from the coastline. That's not how it works with God. They viewed their gods, and Jonah had fallen into this perspective as well, like we do jurisdictions with police departments. You guys have all had that experience where you're driving down the freeway, you see a police car, you tap the brakes. Even if you're not speeding, you hit the brakes every time. And then you realize that it's some school district's police department, and you can speed right up. Because the KDISD guy cannot pull me over on Beltway 8. He's got no jurisdiction here. We view oftentimes God that way. At least Jonah falls into that. He believes he's going to run from God's presence. And immediately, even these pagan men say, if you worship the God who has made the heavens and the earth, the God who has control of the seas, you have made a mistake. They ask Jonah what to do. Jonah instructs them that they are to throw him overboard. I want you to notice Jonah doesn't repent and ask God's forgiveness. He says, throw me out of the boat. They don't want to do that. And so they try to row back towards safety. They can't. Eventually they decide to throw him overboard. Jonah records what happens next in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so chapter 1, verse 17 gives us the basic events of what happened. Jonah gets thrown overboard. Fish comes, swallows him up. He's in there three days and three nights. What happens in Jonah chapter 2, what we're going to read, is Jonah's psalm. Where Jonah writes a song of thanksgiving from the most interesting location of all settings in the Bible. The belly of a fish. And in that psalm, he tells not the basic facts of what happened, but his experience of being thrown overboard and God sending a fish to come and rescue him. So I want you to look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed and over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. 
salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah has one of those moments that in our minds and our experience tends to be longer than the actual time that has elapsed. People will talk about their life flashing before their eyes. One of those moments that that the experience is so significant and maybe the adrenaline begins to ratchet up and and our minds race at a speed that is unlike any other times in our lives. And we begin to see things with such speed and rapidity that, that it feels like hours have passed when only moments have. You see, Jonah was ready to drown until the moment he hit the water. And then realized that he really wanted to see tomorrow. So in this moment of distress, while he's in the water, drowning in the storms, Jonah begins to think and to reflect, and with great speed to cry out to God. Point out something interesting about Jonah that I think is interesting about us, is that these are the moments we tend to seek the Lord. I want you to think about Jonah's experience. God has called Jonah... Jonah has disobeyed God, and because of that, Jonah's life is falling apart. Jonah has no one to blame but himself on this. He's disobeyed God, and because of that, God's judgment is upon him. And yet in the midst of this, he cries out to God. And we tend to function the same way. We'll go our own way until the moment of distress when everything is shaken and the wheels fall off and then we cry out to Him. Why is it that we wait so long? And some of us are so proud that even when the wheels fall off, we'll go down to the depths without crying out. At least Jonah's experience broke him and brought him to a moment where he recognized his need for God. Jonah summarizes the whole experience of drowning and crying out to God In chapter 2, verse 7, he said, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is important for us to think through because we we often just kind of take the chapter 1, verse 17 telling of the story, and we say Jonah was thrown overboard and a fish swallowed him, and we assume that there's no elapse of time between one and the other. We don't know how long Jonah's in the water before the fish rescues him. Jonah says it felt like a long time. Jonah attempts to swim and he can't. He's down, tangled in seaweed, tossed and thrown by the waves with no control over where he goes, seemingly trapped, expecting that he will not recover. And he says, when my life was fainting away, Jonah was on his last breath, about to go unconscious. And the fish comes and saves him, swallows him up as he cries out with his last moments of awareness, God save me. And as God has saved Jonah these days there in the fish, Jonah makes a deal with God. Chapter 2, verse 9, we see this. It says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah says, God, you've saved me. My life belongs to you. I'll do what you command. Now, I want to point out something that doesn't happen yet. 
because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Jonah has not become passionate about God's plan. He simply recognized that God is God and he is not, and his job is to obey. And there's a distinction between obedience and passion for what God is doing. Jonah now is at a place of obedience to God's plan. He's going to do what he vowed to do. His heart hasn't necessarily been changed, but he understands who God is and who he is, and he knows that the only path forward for him is obedience. So he makes a deal with God that he will obey and fulfill his vow. And then the Lord does something surprising to me. The Lord recommissions Jonah in a very unique way. He doesn't call an ordination council and have some guys come and pray over him. Verse 10 tells us what he does. In chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up out upon the dry land. Not the best means of travel, but there he goes. Now, there's something interesting about the story to me, and I don't know if you share the same perspective, but for me, growing up with the felt board version of the story, when Jonah gets spit out on dry land, it always seemed to me that Nineveh was close in the background. It always kind of felt like he got tossed up on the shores of Nineveh, and then he just walked in the city and preached. And I want you to think through uh, the reality of the story with me, that that's probably not what took place. Nineveh isn't even on the coastline of the sea that Jonah is in. It's off of a river inland a few hundred miles. Most likely, when Jonah gets spit out of the fish, he's still got a journey to go, and he's not going to walk in the next day to the city and preach. So Jonah spit out on dry land and he's safe and God has renewed his call on Jonah's life in an interesting way. This is where I think we've got to step back and think about the significance of the story of Jonah. Because the story is about a God who saves. More than it is about a man and a fish. It's a story of a God who saves people in ways that are unexpected. So I want us to reflect for a moment about how salvation works. Because I believe that Jonah 2 communicates some important things about salvation working. And he ends his psalm with this proclamation, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I want us to dig in for a moment to what that means. When we say and when Jonah says that salvation belongs to the Lord, first we mean this, that only God can save. Only God is capable of salvation. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, you see this clearly. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So Jonah draws a contrast between God's ability to rescue and the vain approach of seeking idols. He says, I cried out to the Lord from the depths, and He saved me. But those who put their hope in idols have a vain hope and there is no love to sustain them. You see, in the end, our idols will fail and they possess no love or care for us. They simply use and destroy. See, idolatry is deeper than just worshiping something at a religious festival. It involves what our lives are centered upon. What we seek as of greatest importance. That is our God for all functional purposes. See, I've known people whose gods were their jobs and their careers. 
And they sacrifice so many things at the altar of a promotion. Only to realize that they were expendable. And that they had given up God's call on them as a husband and a father in order to have some dream of a career that offered them no hope in the day of trouble. Think with me for a moment. It's a bit of a morbid exercise, but I want you to chew on this. If tonight, before dinner, you were to be sitting watching the game. Now, I want to save you some stress. The Texans are probably going to lose today. So don't let that be the cause of the heart attack that we're going to pretend is happening tonight. If that were to happen this evening, and tomorrow you are not going to go to work. In fact, what's going to happen is that someone, uh, a co-worker is going to inform the boss that, that you passed away during the night. And I want you to ask yourself this simple question. In that scenario, how long does it take for me to be replaced? How long? Now, that number varies based upon what you do. If you're the CEO, then the, then the length is longer than if you're an entry-level employee. If you're in middle management, I can tell you this, after hiring people in that environment, it's 60 to 90 days before we replace you. And within 60 to 90 days, it's as if you were never there. The cog gets replaced in the machine, and it keeps going. You see, but if the same scenario happens, and you were to call your spouse and say, how long until I'm replaced? Hopefully she would not say 60 to 90 days. Hopefully the window's longer. But the reality is you're not replaceable there. In the lives of the people that you've invested in, if you've been discipling people, caring for them, trying to minister to them, it's not 60 to 90 days. And see, I want you to see this, and I, and I use that example to show you what's truly important is that we will go after things that we make a priority that biblically are out of line. Yes, we should work hard to honor the Lord and provide for our families, but it shouldn't be our King and our God. And when the priorities get, get flipped and things are out of place, we begin pouring ourselves into things that in the end don't love us. And in the end, when the days of difficulty come, they can't sustain us. Jonah says that when you seek... And regard idols, your hope is in vain because there's no love for you and no power to rescue you. All of the things of this world that we prioritize, that we believe to be important in the day of trouble can do very little to rescue us. A nice car and a vacation home can do absolutely nothing to restore a broken marriage. They can't save you. They're fun but they lack the power to save. In addition to idols not being able to save us, Jonah shows us that you cannot save you either. I'm reasonably certain that Jonah made every effort he could to get his head above the water and breathe, and the storm and the waves continued to drive him deeper into the ocean. And as he struggled and flailed and lost his breath, the seaweed wrapped around him, and you and I, just like Jonah, are overwhelmed by the flood of our sin and incapable of doing anything to quiet the storm of God's judgment against sinful men and women. We need a God to save us. And only He can save. We cannot save ourselves. Our idols cannot rescue us. Only God can save. Now, after making that simple statement that only God can save, it's important that we ask another question. Because if we're putting all of our eggs in one basket here, the question we should ask is, is that a 
good basket? Is God willing to save? Well, if the story of Jonah shows us anything, it shows us that God is willing to save. It's a story of God desiring to save the most wicked people imaginable. People who are violent and aggressive, who are a constant threat to God's people. And God sends a messenger to go, offering them a chance at repentance. If Jonah's story communicates anything to us, it's that God is patient and willing to save. Even when His people disobey Him, even when they dishonor Him, even when they run from Him, He comes to rescue them. God's grace comes to sinful people because God is rich in mercy. When the Apostle Paul sought to consider the question, is God willing to save? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he begins to talk about that. And what Paul's going to do in the first three verses is describe our state outside of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And then he's going to talk about God's willingness to save. And I want you to hear this with me. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want to just pause there and see what he said. He said, everybody outside of Jesus is spiritually dead, pursuing sinful desires under the spiritual direction of who he calls the prince of the power of the air. That's a euphemism for Satan. So I want you to understand Paul's kind of broad stroke of humanity outside of Jesus. It says, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, so that's where we stand. And then everything's going to flip with one word, but. It says, but. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I want you to hear the story that Paul's telling. He says every one of us because of our sin was distant, separated from God and deserving of God's judgment but God because he's rich in mercy. Not because we were deserving of mercy not because there was anything good in us simply because he's rich in mercy while we were dead in our sin, He raised us up. He chose to extend mercy to us. And God is willing to save, but His willingness to save is in no way connected to our deserving nature because we're not deserving. This is the unique thing about Christianity is that we're not worthy of God's love we don't deserve it. There's no way that we can earn it, and yet He freely offers it. And He tells that story to remind us that, that it is God's grace that saves us because God is rich in mercy, not because we're deserving of salvation, but simply because He is willing. And if we ever doubted the willing nature of God to save, the Scriptures would point us over and over again to the cross of Jesus where the only Son of God died in our place. If God needed to do anything else to prove that he loved us and was willing to save, I don't know what he could do. So only God can save, but God has proven over and over again that he is willing to. The third reality that we need to understand that I think is incredibly important is that the path to salvation is never predictable. It's never the one that we would have called out. 
In fact, when you read the story of Jesus and what he did, no one saw that coming, even though you could, in retrospect, see how the prophets had foretold it. It's not what anyone expected. It was a a mystery that was hidden until it was revealed. But the work of salvation is one that we don't see coming. God saves people we wouldn't expect him to in ways that we wouldn't have guessed. He uses people that we wouldn't have used. In fact, it's a good thing that nothing that God does in salvation is the way we would do it. Because if it were left to you and I, no one would be saved. Because offering forgiveness and mercy to sinful men and women requires a limitless grace and mercy. And you and I have limited mercy to people. And limited grace based upon the fact that we are limited people. If it were left to me and you, no one would be saved. So we must be okay with this unpredictable path and not demand that God do things the way that we would. It's just like the New Testament coming to the Mana people. They didn't follow a clearly lined out project plan. It took a lot of curves and turns along the way, but it was the work of God. And it was surprising and unexpected and difficult and lengthy, but it was the work of God. I think it's important as Christians for us to understand that the path of salvation is never clean and predictable. Because if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, there is a high probability that there are people we know and love who are wayward from God and we have a burden for them. And so if you're kind of here today and you have some people you dearly care about and they're running from God and they're distant from Him and you're wrestling with how this works and it's testing your faith, I want to hopefully encourage you from the story of Jonah today that the plan from A to B may look like a winding trail. It may be unpredictable. In fact, things may get worse before they get better. And don't confuse the difficulty of the circumstance that that person is going through with God being distant or unwilling to save. It may be the means that God is using to turn them. Jonah, like us, had to be at the depths in order to experience the salvation that God offered. And it may require taking that person you love that far. If that's what it takes for them to repent, it will likely be an unexplainable, emotional roller coaster. But here's what I would encourage you to do is you just keep crying out to the Lord. Because salvation belongs to Him. Who else will you ask? Because only God can save, and God is willing to save. And so plead with Him, communicate the truth of God, but know that, that the straight path that you would hope for, that you would have planned, probably won't happen. But that doesn't mean that God isn't good, and it doesn't mean that He won't move. It means He won't move in the way you would tell Him to be. Because God's plan is richer and better than anything we could ask for that. And if you walk away with one thing today, I want you to hear this and let it resonate from the words of Jonah in the depths. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. That while we are sinners, you have reached out to us in your mercy and grace to us to draw us near to you. That in this winding path, you are present and you are calling. Father, I want to pray for those who came here today who don't know you, who haven't trusted in you. Father, this would be the day of salvation for them. 
Father, for those who come today with a heavy burden, for those they love who are wayward, Father, I want to join with them in prayer that you would move and rescue. And I also pray that you would lift up and encourage those who are continually pleading before you for those that they care for, that you would strengthen and encourage them as well. In Jesus' name.